So one year ago today, we started this journey to the book of Ephesians. We launched it on fall kickoff of 2022. It's been 42 weeks. Uh, we've taken a few breaks here and there for Advent and some other things like that. But we've gone 42 weeks to the book of Ephesians in a full circle of a year. And we've got about four or five weeks left. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, we saw Paul make a really powerful kind of move towards the end. He turns the corner, if you will. He makes this kind of very intentional move to kind of wrap up what he was doing and to begin to tell the church that they are going to have to prepare themselves for the battle that is ahead. And we talked about the idea that Paul reminds the church that the battle ahead is not against flesh and blood, that it's not going to be a battle in which we are going to fight a physical enemy, but we are going to be in a spiritual battle over our lives and the lives of our families and the lives of our children, and the church needs to ready itself for that battle, that the enemy is real, very real, and there is a war being waged over your life. And what we talked about two weeks ago was this, is that as the church, even as a modern Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, we often talk about the things like the grace and the goodness of Christ and God's love for us and his redeeming qualities and values, but very seldom do we spend time talking about the reality of the evil one, the reality of sin and death and Satan and the war that's being waged spiritually over our lives. But the Bible talks explicitly about it, and so we need to make it part of our understanding. We need to talk about the idea that the enemy will do anything he can to wage war against your soul. That his nature is to lie and deceive and to steal and to kill. And that he will wage war over you. In fact, that's what we learn in the end of Ephesians. That there's a war being waged over the lives and hearts of believers and we have to ready ourselves. And so Paul <clears throat> begins by telling the church that they need to defend themselves and that God has given them everything they need as followers of Christ to defend themselves. And Brandon last week spent time going over the very first part of this defensive structure, if you will. They call it the armor of God, right? It's right there in Ephesians 6. The tools that the believer needs to stand up against the principalities, and the darkness of the world against the evil one. And Brandon explored those first three pieces, right? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Well, this morning we're going to explore the second three in that line of the armor, and we're going to talk about the only offensive weapon that we've been given as the believers in Christ. That we have access to the word, the logos of God, and that we are called to use it to fight off the enemy. And as a church, we are called not only to stand in defense and to stand firm, but to actively fight and resist the evil one. And we're going to look at how to do that this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn back to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in the second part of the armor of God as we wrap up and get closer to the end of this study of the book of Ephesians. So if you've got your Bible, <clears throat> go ahead and turn there. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. Lord, what a privilege to be the church, to gather together in community, to realize this was the reason Paul wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's the reason he wrote the letter to the church in Philippi or Galatia or Colossae. It's the reason he wrote these letters to these groups of believers because they were gathered together saying, how do we live? How do we follow Christ together? How do we do life? How do we stand firm? in the wake of a world that wants to destroy us? How do we live against the onslaught of the enemy? How do we stand for each other? How do we keep our hearts pure and clean? 
The church is crying out for these questions, and so these letters were written to speak into those places. And Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus was written just to that crowd, a group of gathered believers saying, we want to follow Christ. And Paul reminds them who they are and gives them the tools that they need to stand, to stand in the under and with the power of God Almighty through the person of Jesus Christ. And so we gather this morning, Lord, in a very similar fashion, uncertain and unsure at times, feeling very much like we are attacked at times, feeling very much like life is uncertain, wondering at times who we are and the mistakes that we've made, but desperately wanting to know how we can live wholly for Christ. And so this morning, Lord, I ask that you would just teach our hearts, that we would recognize that we're fighting a very real battle against a very real enemy that is very powerful, but that you have overcome him through the cross. And that you have given us every tool imaginable to be able to withstand the enemy's onslaught and be victorious because you are victorious. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here this morning before we kind of dive into these sections and just ask the Lord for the next few moments to teach your heart. To take some familiar passages, hopefully, and make them personal. To give you tools you need to walk out of here, not discouraged, but encouraged. For victory is ours in Christ. Ask the Lord to prepare you to hear his word this morning. Take a moment as we do each Sunday morning and pray for someone around you. Pray for your husband or your wife or maybe your kiddos sitting next to you or maybe someone that you don't even know. Maybe you're here for the first time and it seems a little weird. We do it every Sunday. We do it because we want to be a church that actively cares and is involved in the spiritual lives of the people around us, that everything on Sunday morning that unfolds here is not about you. We're not here for your entertainment or your enjoyment. We're here as a body that is sewn together by the word of God, and we want to see the people around us grow. So pray for them. Pray that God would move in them, would teach them, he would equip them. Lord, take your word. Reveal it to us. <clears throat> Teach us truth that we might know you and experience you and stand firm in the wake of the onslaught of an enemy who wants to lie and deceive and kill and destroy. You have given us every tool we need in Christ. Show us those this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at two verses this morning, but I want to go ahead and read um, from 13 on because I want you to hear them all in context. But so we're going to be focusing on 16 and 17, which are the last three pieces of the armor of God. If you've missed any of these messages, they're all online. All you got to do is go to our website, click on teaching, and you can listen to all these. I encourage you to listen to how Brandon explained the first part of the armor of God last week. Um, it's going to pair well, of course, with what we're talking about this week. But let's start in verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything you can to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And next week we're going to learn how to put those into practice through prayer, but we're going to pay special attention to the last three, right? 
Take the shield of faith by which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This rounds out the complete armor. Now, I'll give you something interesting. We got, you know, really, we have a lot of things going on today. We've got uh, food trucks coming, we've got community, we've got things happening, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be kind of brief. But here's something interesting. There is a, a guy that wrote a book, or several books, three volumes actually, called The, Complete Ar- the Christian in Complete Armor. It was written in the 1600s by a guy by the name of William Gurnall. And he wrote these volumes over these 11 verses. They're actually sermons that he preached that were contained in three volumes. You can still get it today. He preached 261 sermons that make up 267 chapters over 11 verses, right? We have spent 42 weeks looking at the entire book of Ephesians. And he yet unpacked all of this in 261 separate Sunday mornings. So we obviously are barely able to scratch the surface of what's unfolding here. So hopefully what this is doing is serving as an introduction for you to go and dive deeper into the Word. But, but Paul says this to the church. I want you to be aware that you are in for the battle of, a life, of your life, the battle of a lifetime. And that battle is not like other battles that you've seen or been a part of or even that you've seen being waged around you. Those battles are against people with enemies that you can see and, and formations that you can understand and plans that you can put in place. But as a believer... As someone who has had their life marked by Christ, you are in a wholly different type of war. There is a spiritual battle that is being waged over your life. And that spiritual battle is real. He actually tells us that it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against things you can see. It's being waged over you and your family and your children. And the enemy has in him a nature. And that nature is to lie and to deceive and to kill and to destroy. And that we don't do ourselves any favors if we don't acknowledge those realities. Right? We can't just paint a rosy picture and talk about the grace and the love and the goodness of Jesus as if these other things don't exist. The reason the love of Christ is so powerful because it triumphs over evil. And so Paul gives this armor to basically tell the Christian, look, I don't know how else to explain this to you, so let me put it in a metaphor in a way that you can actually see. And all of these believers would have been familiar with what armor looks like. They were occupied by Romans. Everywhere they turn. In fact, Paul is under house arrest in Rome, most likely guarded by a Roman centurion standing outside of his door by which he sees all of this armor. So it's very visual and would have been very familiar. And so last week he begins this process for us, right? Breastplate of righteousness, covering those internal organs, belt of truth, the feet with the gospel. Went through all those things. And this week he continues, right, for us, and he says this. He says the first thing in the second part of this picture of armor, right, is to take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, shields were designed for one distinct purpose, and that was to defend. That was the entire purpose of a shield. It was to to defend oneself from an enemy's onslaught. And Paul actually makes it very specific. He says the shield of faith was designed to to defend from the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, when I read this, I think of those scenes from Braveheart, right? Remember the movie Braveheart? William Wallace and his kind of band of Scottish clansmen fighting against the armies of the English, you know? 
And that English army was well healed, and they would be on the other side of this battlefield, and the Scotsmen with their sort of makeshift like garden tools and, and shields would stand on the other side. And in those scenes, the English would take these arrows and they would dip them in the tips and fire and they would launch this barrage of arrows across the field. This little clan of Scots guys would pull up their shields and they'd put them edge to edge. And those flaming arrows, you can go back and watch the movie, would, would fo- volley and then they would land in these shields and they would extinguish. Push. They didn't hit the shield right. They might hit what's behind them, catch fire, catch fire to a person or something, but they were devastating. And they were designed to wreak havoc. They weren't designed as an arrow was just simply to penetrate a person. They were designed to penetrate and then catch fire, to land behind you, to burn the land behind the group, to land in these buildings, to do whatever to hopefully cause mass havoc. Two weeks ago, we talked about in depth about the nature of the enemy. We talked about the enemy having two natures in his character, right? The nature, the first one was that he's the father of lies. We explored this concept through the book of Genesis. We talked about his entire nature is to lie and deceive. That's why he exists. He was a liar from the beginning. His goal is to deceive and to lie. In fact, Jesus himself calls him the father of lies. Everything that he does in his nature is designed to deceive your heart. To whisper into the places that you are already weak and get you to believe things that are fully untrue. About yourself, about God, about the world around you. Remember what he told Eve? Surely God didn't say not to eat of that fruit, right? He just didn't want you to be like him. The enemy begins to whisper lies. The second part of his nature is that he comes to steal and kill. Right? John 10.10 10 tells us that. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. His entire motive is to kill and to destroy the things that matter to you, to destroy hope, to be destructive. And Paul says the enemy does this through these flaming arrows or flaming darts. These things that are designed for one purpose, and that is to make it past your defenses and wreak havoc. It's really easy to defend against one singular arrow, but when a barrage is launched from across the field, which is what the enemy tends to do in our life, to launch attacks on our soul and our heart and our mind at all angles and at all times. They're designed to catch fire. And it doesn't happen quickly, right? Sometimes that arrow pierces and we're like, man, this is, life is hard, this is rough. And then we begin to give life to those thoughts that the enemy has poked through our defenses with. Maybe I'm not worth much. Maybe I don't deserve this. Maybe God isn't real. Maybe all this is a hoax. Maybe God isn't who he says he is. And we begin to give life to those things and fire begins to catch. And this is what Paul says. He says the shield was designed to protect against those flaming arrows and that shield is of what? Faith. Now think about how that plays into defense. What Paul is saying is essentially our greatest defense against the enemy's lies is believing that God is who he says he is. Trusting that the God who has always been will always be. So in the early first century, there was a, uh, a leader in the church in Samaria, a guy by the name of Polycarp, P-O-L-Y-C-A-R-P, which is a super weird name. But that's what his parents didn't like him. I don't know. Whatever. They named him Polycarp, which to me is like a lot of carp. I don't know. But that's a bunch of different kinds, right? I don't know. But he was a big deal. You can read about him in all kinds of church history stuff. He actually doesn't show up really in Scripture, but you can read about him in other church histories. But, but he's from Ephesus, interestingly enough, and he's a leader of the church in Samaria. 
And the church in Samaria is really where persecution begins to break out after Philip's stoning. The Romans begin to persecute Christians. Well, there's a story about this leader that essentially as this persecution breaks out after the stoning of, of, of Philip. Not Philip, Stephen, excuse me. Philip, yeah, you're right, Stephen, good call. The stoning of Stephen, right? Philip ends up leaving from Samaria and going down to the desert road in Gaza. But the stoning of Stephen, a story breaks out. That the people in Samaria want the Christian leaders captured and killed. And the Romans are all too happy to oblige because they want the, the Christians out of there too. Because they didn't hate Christians because Christians believed in God. They hated Christians because the Christians believed there was one God, right? And Nero believed he was God, and therefore there was not room for another. And they also believed in a whole host of other deities, and so they hated Christians because the Christians were intolerant, right? Which is ironic. It hasn't changed much. But nonetheless, Polycarp was a leader of the church in Samaria. And so the people said, you've got to find this guy. He's the one leading this group of people. And so they send out a legion of Roman uh, army, a, a, a legion of Roman soldiers, and they find this guy Polycarp at some country home outside of town. They seize him. He's 86 years old. They drag him into an arena, and they strap him to a post. And the proconsul of Rome stands there, and he says this, We are going to release these wild beasts. And they are going to devour you in front of all of these people unless you renounce Christ. And his very famous line, Polycarp says this. He says, for 86 years I have served Jesus. And he has never wronged me. I'm not about to blaspheme my master now. So they burned him at the stake right there in front of everybody. There's a lot of legend that goes on after that, that and he didn't actually burn and, like he should have, and so they took a dagger and stabbed him while he was on fire. But the incredible thing about that to me is this. Not that Polycarp was a great martyr, right? Like There were a lot of those kind of people that would say, no, I'm not going to deny Christ. You can kill me. There, the first century was full of incredible martyrs. But his words that said this, for 86 years of my life, Jesus has never done me wrong. See, the shield of faith says this. It says that I hear what you say, enemy, but I rely on what I know to be true about who God is. And that is for 86 years of my life, he has never failed me. And I'm not about to walk away now. The shield of faith says I know what is true about God and therefore I will put my hope in him and not in you. David has the same thing happening. In Psalm 63, he is the king of Israel, and he's running for his life from a guy by the name of Absalom. Absalom was to put up an uprising to try and take over the kingdom of Israel. Instead of fighting for his kingdom, David runs out into the wilderness, and he hides in a cave. And he writes Psalm 63.3 in the first three verses from that cave, crying out to God. And this is what he says, and it's really important. He says this in the first part of that psalm. He says, God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, I have seen you in your sanctuary, and I have beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you, and I will praise you as long as I live. That middle verse is the same sentiment as what Polycarp mentioned. He says this, Lord, I am in a dry and weary place and my enemies are pressing in all around me. He said, but I have seen you 
in your sanctuary. I have beheld your power and your glory. Therefore, my lips will praise you. So what David says is that I feel like I'm being attacked from all sides. There is an enemy that has been raised up to overthrow my life and he wants to kill me. But I know one thing to be true. I have seen you. I've actually witnessed your power and your glory. Therefore, I will not be afraid. But my lips will praise you instead of cursing you, asking where you are. I'll remember that I've seen you. The shield of faith is what we hold over our head to say, God, for my life, you have never failed me. You haven't walked out of me. You haven't abandoned me. I'm not going to listen to lies of the enemy that tells me you will. I'm not going to listen to lies of the enemy that tells me that this won't work out, that you don't have me, that this struggle in our marriage or in our financial world or in my personal world is too big for you to overcome. I'm not going to believe a lie that tells me that you don't love me, that I'm not valued, or that this is unredeemable. Because those are the flaming arrows that are designed to catch fire in your soul. And they will burn everything they touch. And so Paul says, the weapon that we have is not to dodge them, not to run around and pretend they're not going to hit you, but to lift up over your head what you know to be true about who God is and hold up the faith that says, God, I know who you are and I know what you've been for me and I will trust you because you have never in 86 years done me wrong. The shield of faith is our weapon against the enemy's lies. The second thing he says is this. Take the helmet of salvation. You know what Paul's really getting at here? Is he's really getting at this idea of this assurance of salvation. The helmet of salvation is this idea that over all of these things, the most visible part of a Roman's armor, right, would be the helmet. Had that thing on top look like a mop. You knew they were a Roman soldier. That the most vital and important part of who we are as followers of Christ is the reality that we've been saved. And being assured in that is the most vital piece of our armor. Because here's what the enemy wants to come in and do. He wants to whisper to the believer, are you sure? I mean, what if God just gives up on you? I mean, what if you've done one too many things? What if this is the last straw? I mean, you confess and you repent, you confess and you repent, you confess and you repent over and over again. What if God finally just says, enough is enough? Like, I'm going to leave you to your own devices. Or have you ever laid there at night wondering if this is really what it means to be saved? Am I really captured? Have I fully given my life over? The enemy loves to come along and say, question it. Because he can't take it from you, but he can make you question it. Now, we know he can't take it from you. There's a ton of references for that in Scripture, but Romans 8 is my favorite, right? Romans 8 is where we see this sort of declaration of the incredible love of who God is and what his love does. And Romans 8, 28 says this. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor powers, nor principalities, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. John talks about it. Well, actually, Jesus himself talks about it, and John records it, where Jesus says, My Father is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep, and his sheep know him, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. 
What we call this in the theological world is the, the doctrine, of the, in a Reformed perspective, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's a Calvinistic term. The idea is simply this, that once you are saved, you will preserve until the end, not under your own power, because you have the ability to live this Christian life perfectly, but because God once has claimed you and sealed you, he has secured you until the end of time itself through eternity. That you can rest in the assurance that you have been rescued and redeemed because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and nothing and no one can snatch you out of the good shepherd's hands. The enemy wants you to question that. Because when you do, when you begin to question that, we begin to lose our gospel effectiveness. We begin to focus inwardly on ourselves. We begin to wonder if any of this is even real or if God has failed me, given up on me, or if I and myself under my own power have somehow removed myself from God's grace. And when we do that, we become ineffective to the people around us. We begin to let our questions become their questions. Our lack of assurance becomes their lack of assurance. And we render ourselves not only ineffective, but we render ourselves a problem in the kingdom. That's how the enemy works. The enemy doesn't outright come out and say, you're not saved, because he can't. But what he does say is, he says, are you really? Same way he whispered to Eve, surely God didn't say. Surely God didn't mean you were really saved. I mean, did you see what you did on Saturday again? And then on Sunday, you cry and say you won't do these things again, and then next weekend rolls around, or next Thursday rolls around, or that thing in your heart creeps back up. You're a terrible parent. You're a worse husband. Eventually, God's just going to let you go. These are the flaming arrows. Are you even really saved? The helmet of salvation is the assurance that says, absolutely, because it is not about me. It is not about my power. It's not about what I do right or keep. It's not about my moral aptitude or how well I walk under the law. No, Christ came and fulfilled it all. My assurance is in the fact that Jesus did what I cannot. Therefore, Satan, you have no voice in my life. I am saved not because of me. The fact that I have to keep starting over is evidence of God's incredible and beautiful grace. I am fully rested and assured that I'm saved but that does not mean that I am content with my sin. I will continue to fight and I will continue to rest assured that even in this fight, you have sealed my soul, Jesus. The helmet of salvation is the assurance that the God who tells you that he loves you and that his love will never be separated from you means it, no matter what you do or where you've been. That that assurance is yours and that you are claimed and sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. So he says, the tools that we have, right? The shield of faith in which we extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. The helmet of salvation in which we understand and assured of our own salvation. And then finally he says this. He says, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now all of us as believers have heard that term, right? The sword of the Spirit, the word of God. We know what it references, but how do we talk about it? How do we understand it? Well, I think it's important to understand how Scripture talks about itself. Right? There's two great passages. I quote them pretty much all the time. Uh, the first comes out of 2nd, uh, well, we'll do the 2nd uh, Timothy one first, which is one we quote quite often. 
2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture is God-breathed. I use that Greek word, theopunestos, which is actually the Greek word that means that it is the very breath of God, God's actual breath, right? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Hebrews talks about it in this way. Hebrews 4.12 talks about it in terms of its power, right? And says this, he says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating even and dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. So this is the picture of the sword, the spirit, the word of God, that it is God-breathed, the theopunestos. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It has every tool that we need as believers, but it is also penetrating. It is sharper than any human tool ever, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it understands and judges the attitudes of your heart, meaning it cuts to the core of who we are. It becomes the only offensive weapon that is given to believers because the sword of the spirit is not just anchored in truth, it's anchored in divine truth. It is God's very breath. It is the tool in which we combat and actively fight the enemy. So God knows, right? He's, he's giving these instructions to Paul that we are under this full active attack spiritually and therefore we need to do everything we can to defend ourselves. But then he says at some point you're going to need to go on the offensive. And the tool that you have I've placed in your hand and it is the very word of God. Remember how Jesus fights the enemy when Satan takes Jesus out into the wilderness and tempts him? Now remember, Jesus is the actual logos of God, John chapter 1. He is the word himself, which means Jesus could command the demons to leave. But instead, what Jesus does is he uses God's word as his weapon, right? You remember the temptations that he faced. Satan takes him out into the wilderness and shows him all these things, and Jesus replies with Scripture. Man shall not live on every on uh, the word alone, but on every word that on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? Quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy six eighteen. Do not worship any other god before me. Deuteronomy six eighteen. In all of these instances, Jesus uses God's word to combat and fight the enemy. Jesus, the logos of God. God embodied in the flesh, the incarnation, uses the word of God as the offensive weapon. This is what we're called to do. I believe he does it as a demonstration for the church. You will face the flaming arrows of the evil one. You will need to rest under the faith that God is who he says he is, so believe it. Trust in what he has done for you. Be assured in your salvation, but start to fight back. The problem is you can't fight with what you don't know. So like any weapon, anything you put in your hand, if you don't know its ins and outs, how it feels, how it holds, how it moves, how are you to use it? And if you're using the metaphor of the sword, how are you supposed to stand in a fight if you've never held it, if you're not familiar with it, if you don't know its movements, its weight, its accuracy, the way it balances in your hand, the nuances of the blade, every portion of it, how do you expect to fight? The word of God is the same way. How do you expect to use it as a tool to fight against the evil darts of the enemy, those flaming arrows, if you don't know it? 
part of the responsibility of the mature follower of Christ is to know the ins and outs of God's word so deeply that you're able to call upon it at the moments when you need it, at the moments when the enemy comes at his best and says, surely God doesn't really love you. Surely you failed one too many times. And we recall scripture, the way that Christ has told words or stories or spoken to believers or his followers, and we've said, no, that is a lie from the pit of hell, and I'll return it where it belongs, because nothing can separate me from God's love. Not life, nor death, not principalities, not darkness. But the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges thoughts and attitudes of our heart. I've memorized that. I know it. The word of God is the theopunestos. It is the breath of God. Therefore, it is my weapon. We love because Christ first loved us. Not because we do it well, but because he loved me. He is the good shepherd. Right? Psalm 63, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. If you don't know the ins and outs of the sword of God's word, you will not be able to use it as a weapon. And the truth is, we can only take the onslaught of the enemy so much. And you know why? Because in James chapter 4, James tells us that the way we get the devil to flee from us is to resist him. He says, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What that means is that if we just stand there actively absorbing arrows, the enemy will never leave. But if we begin to resist, begin to fight, begin to use the word of God as the weapon in which it is to get Satan's lies out of our lives, he will flee from us because he has no power against the mighty word of God. If you are not spending time in God's word, you are putting yourself in peril spiritually. If you are feeling overwhelmed and overcome with life, like the enemy is just sort of taking you for everything that you've got, that he's knocking you down, kicking you, and then just spitting in your eye. If you feel like life is compounding and you have these things running through your heart, running through your soul, running through your mind, questions that are real, if you feel like you're living in the middle of mediocrity, the reality is I almost promise you that you're not spending the time in the word of God that you need to. I can almost promise you unilaterally that the majority of us that are facing those things, those onslaughts, we are not spending time reading, knowing, memorizing, studying, meditating, and using God's word. It is the tool that comforts. It's the tool that supports, that encourages, that strengthens, that overcomes. It is powerful and it is sharp. It's convicting, but it's designed to be. So this is what he says, right, wrapping all this up. We're in this active battle, and it is real. Do not pretend it's not. The enemy is real, and he wants your life. If you're a believer, he can't take it, but he can render you ineffective. He can deceive, and he can lie, and he can steal, and he can kill, and he can destroy. And he's given you the tools that you need. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel on your feet, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the most potent weapon imaginable, God's very breath, his very word, the logos, the word of God, scripture, God-breathed, powerful, sharp, ready, but you have to know it. 
But what's even more remarkable than all of these things is that God has given us his son, which is actually the embodiment of the word of God, the logos. The word was from the beginning. The word always was. The word was God and the word is God. And the word was from the beginning, John chapter one. What that means is that Jesus himself is the great overcomer. We see that demonstrated through this table. This table is the picture of that incredible set of victories that we've been given through Christ. Jesus defeats death, and this table is the reminder of that incredible defeat. It's the reminder of exactly what Christ did on the cross. That is the point of this table. The point of this table is not to create rituals for churches to do once a month or every Sunday or whenever they practice it. Habits and rituals for the church are detestable to God. Just read Deuteronomy. Their empty and hollow religious activities actually detested, Lord detested them. He said they were a stench in his nostrils. This table was designed not only as a reminder, but as an empowering move for the church to say, this is what Jesus has done, and this is who I am in Christ. On the very night that he was betrayed, on the night that everybody would take off and run and flee and abandon him, on the very night after he had celebrated the Passover with his disciples, he gathered them at the table, and he gave them this, by which they would pass to the entire church and become the unifying factor for believers all over the world. But he gathers them together and he says, after giving thanks, he says, this is my body and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for you. It is the forgiveness of sins. It is the new covenant poured out for you that as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection until he comes again. The Apostle Paul tells us that we're supposed to examine our hearts before we share in this meal, that it is something that we don't take lightly, that if we have unconfessed sin or if we have things going on in our life or shortcomings, we're supposed to lay them out before the Lord because this table is more than a habit. It's more than a ritual. It's more than an exercise in our Christian life. It is an expression of God's love played out for us, and therefore we should examine our hearts. So this morning we encourage you to do just that, to examine your heart before you come and participate in this meal. But it's not a denominational table. It's open to all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the only caveat, that you have to have professed faith in Christ. This is for those that follow him. And so this morning, as we do each, each time we celebrate communion, we take by means of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying you take a piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup and then you can eat. We'll have stations in the front and the back. We do have uh, some gluten-free stuff that will be available down front. So if that's in your wheelhouse you can come down there and, and uh, participate in that form of Jesus' uh, bread. Um, this is our table together, and it's a picture of that victory that's been handed to us in Christ. A victory that ultimately was won on the cross, but that we have been called to fight on a daily basis to defend our hearts from the onslaught of a very real enemy. Let's pray together. As we do, I invite our elders to come forward. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in this meal, that you would be exalted, Lord, in our opportunity together. Lord, we pray that you would be strengthened and strengthen us, Lord, as we um, stand firm and holy. Lord, as we trust you and as we put our hope in you. 
Lord, may you use this meal to strengthen our heart and our souls, Lord, that we would be encouraged and empowered by your word. God, you call us to this meal. You give us these tools. We ask, Lord, that you would empower us this morning. We encourage you after you celebrate this to remain standing, and we'll close our time in worship this morning. But come forward, participate, and let's celebrate together.
Lord, we thank you for the reality of what this meal means, that it's not just simple elements, that it is a truth that is poured out and portrayed to us. Lord, that you have shown us your love, your expression of love through your body and through your blood. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Lord, you have given us hope in Christ. You have defeated evil and darkness once for all, and you have given us every tool that we need to overcome. So, Lord, we ask that as we close our time in worship this morning, as we sing at the top of our lungs to a God who was redeemed and saved and rescued, Lord, that we would take those truths and that we would sow them deep into our souls so that we too would proclaim victory in Christ, that we would guard ourselves with the full and complete armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel on our feet, Lord, that we would prepare our hearts and protect them with the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. And that, Lord, we would learn to fight because we know and love the word of God. So, Lord, as we close our time in worship this morning, be exalted and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? To you for refuge, to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. My soul on Jesus I lean for repose. I will not, will not desert 
trials, thy pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design. Thy dross to consume and I go to refine. My soul on Jesus I lean for Let's give the Lord a hand. A little country hoedown feel to that one. That was good. Hey, we are are part of this incredible expression of God's love. Like as the church, we are the expression of love of God to the watching world. And we are called to know and to be actively engaged in this fight. So the challenge is to not only put on this full armor of God, but that it might be time to fight. Get to know the word of God. Spend time in it, right? Make it part of your story on a daily basis and let God use it to defend the flaming arrows and the lies and the deceit of the enemy. This morning, we're celebrating all of this together by spending time just having lunch together. So pulling up outside as we speak, in theory, is uh, our friends. We had a little snafu down here, if you didn't notice. Is our, our friends from Lively's Barbecue. They are pulling up here, and it's open to everybody. So grab food, come in here, hang out, spend time with people. If you need to go, we totally get it. But we'd love for you to celebrate and be part of the church community. But whatever you do, go from this place empowered by the Holy Spirit, ready to fight, and ready to believe that you are exactly who God says you are and that he is exactly who he says he is. Go in peace.